welcome to the Machine Learning and Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Daly. I'm the founder of Skin Analytics. Uh, we're a company that uses machine learning to diagnose skin cancer. And I've asked Dr. James Samaru of HS Ventures to come join me and help me set up this podcast and figure out how to get all this information we want to share and explore across to you in a nice little way. You guys are so evidence focused, aren't you? I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to come speak to you about this rather than anybody else is, is just because you've got such a heavy focus on research. And obviously, I saw the paper that you guys had out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, so JAMA, quite recently, which sort of put you guys at the top of my list for, for people <laughs> that are in this space. Real sort of basic question here, but one that I'm sure you'll be able to answer is how do you know that your algorithm is any good? Yeah, well, uh, that's a, another great question. Because I'm, com- I'm coming, at this, I'm coming at this purely from somebody who sat in a GP clinic, and I've seen patients, and you know, I've looked at these lesions myself, and you know, if only I had this, you know, Star Trek style scanner that could just <laughs> give me a definitive, and I could trust it. So, how do you guys know that that, that your algorithm is any good? Yeah, it's a it's an excellent uh, it's an excellent question because you know if you asked me this three years ago, um, I would have told you our algorithm was brilliant and I was wrong, and we have bled at the cutting edge of trying to answer this question. And so so three years ago, what happened was when an algorithm was performing at some ridiculous percentage accuracy, and we were like, hey, this is easy, we've solved this, this is great. Um, and we were using some of the networks that t- people typically use, which were developed by Google and Oxford and a whole bunch of other people, and we're ensembling them together, and it looked great. Um, and then we got a hold of a new data set from a, from a partner we were working with, and we ran the algorithm across it, and it was not good. <laughs> it was not good at all. Um, and then we collected our own data set, said, oh, well, maybe there's something wrong with that. And we collected our own data set where we knew that people were okay from a population of you know, friends and family, South Africa, Australia. There's a couple hundred images. And I think we said there are about 40 melanomas in a couple hundred images. So, Whoa. you know, we're, we're in this awful situation where we're calling out family members going, we think we've got a problem with our algorithm, but you might want to go oh. to a dermatologist <laughs> because we just, you know, we, we've gone into an ethical minefield because, yeah. you know, what do you do? The algorithm could have been right, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. But we had to sort of share that information. And so that was a, a real eye opener for us. And, and it really sparked a lot of work for us to sort of unpick what's causation and correlation, mm. which is the big flaw in machine learning. And that culminated for us in, in a couple of more studies that we've done, but also um, specifically in a prospective study that we published in JAMA. And it's the first prospective study that was powered to test dermatology and machine learning. And what we were able to show there is that if you load the dice against the AI, so you give the clinicians everything, all the patient history, the patient in front of them, give them the best opportunity they have to diagnose the disease. And then you give the data to the AI when it's never seen this data, it's not got any training data that's like this. Uh, and you say, okay, how does it go? And what we were able to show is that the machine learning algorithm that we built specifically to, to address this problem of overfitting and generalization uh, performed very well. It performed as well as the dermatologist. And then we've been able to sort of analyze that data and really sort of pick out some, some really interesting things that we didn't expect around the confidence of the algorithm and, and how that mapped to the confidence of the clinician uh, that again helped us sort of build in a whole series of improvements. And so while we originally set up that study in JAMA, the prospective study is a sort of a thing that we were doing because we knew we had to prove to clinicians with that level of evidence. Yeah. 
what it's actually done has made our algorithm twice as good as what it was before. And every other study that we do makes these significant improvements. We learn more about it. And so we've got four more studies underway um, across, you know, across the patch in London and in Australia, mostly funded by a, a biomedical catalyst grant that we've got. And we're so excited about it because every time we get this data, every time we do this work with these clinicians, we just get further and further into the detail about how to make this useful to clinicians rather than that top line number that you see in all those newspaper articles. Yeah, because when I read your study as well, you know, be, being a clinician and being from the front line, I just love hearing and seeing, and it makes me feel comfortable anyway when I start seeing the NHS logo and I start seeing that this has been tested within a system in which I work with hospitals that my friends work in and you know, all those different things. Because you guys did that with a bunch of NHS hospitals, which I think, you know, when it comes to gaining trust and proving that this actually works. I think whilst you could just do this on any sorts of data, the fact that you're actually making waves in the NHS world, from from my perspective, being from the front line, it, it makes me feel a lot more comfortable. I mean, is that something that I guess you've seen and, and felt from others? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it wasn't easy to get the NHS hospitals involved at first. I remember going around to to every dermatologist in every hospital that would see me and say, how about we run this study? It's going to be really cool. It's machine learning. And we're going to, <laughs> On this we're going weird to test tech it. that yeah. nobody understands. And, <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, no, we're really busy. No, no, seriously, we're really busy. We just don't have any time. Um, and then eventually um, a, a consultant dermatologist uh, who was head of department at Royal Free, Ulios Palomaris, said, yeah, let's give it a go. Um, and that was probably two and a half years into going around trying to get this set up. Wow. Uh, and once we had it, through R&D department at Royal Free and we got it listed on the NIHR portfolio it's called so it becomes a national study that other people can say hey I'm interested in can take part all of a sudden we had all these hospitals approaching us so we got six more hospitals and we ended up having to say no to a bunch of them just because the cost of the equipment Mm -hmm. to put into the site which wasn't very large I mean it's three five thousand pounds I guess Mm. per site but we were a small startup who didn't have a lot of money. And so we were going, you know, seven sites is probably all the capex we can afford to get this data. Um, but we probably had another six or seven hospitals who were keen to get involved. Um, so it was, it was really interesting how difficult it was and then how easy it became. Um, but I, I think we made the right decisions staying within the UK and working with NHS hospitals because we had opportunities to go elsewhere across Europe that were a bit more, um, I guess, open to the idea initially. But the quality of the researchers and the, the clinicians that we work with in the UK is just so high. And so when we were designing the study, we had help from Italy, we had help from Australia, and we had help from the UK. But when we were designing the study, we kept thinking of new ways to make it harder for the AI, which sounded like we're trying to stack the dice against us. But what we we're trying to do is say, at the end of the study, we want to know, does it work? And can we trick it? And can we trust it? And so the clinicians and the researchers said, well, you've got this problem. Why don't you do it in this way to try and resolve that? And I think that's what makes this study so powerful. It's not just that it's perspective, it's powered, it's in those seven NHS hospitals. It's that it really answers the key questions that the clinicians had that they were worried that if they didn't have the answers to, they wouldn't know if they could trust the system. So essentially, it's as good as dermatologists you're quite literally ready to be used on the front line. Can people buy it? Can people use it? What stage are you at in terms of that stuff? 
Yeah, so uh, we have gone right the way through the regulatory process. We've gone through the clinical evidence process. We've managed to convince an insurer to insure it. And actually, at some point, what I'd like to do is bring in the, uh, the brokers that we use and have a chat with them about the, how difficult that was. Because, quite frankly, there is no way you can get medical indemnity insurance for a machine. <laughs> They're made for people. Uh, and it was a fascinating journey. So we've gone through all of that process. And right now, the AI is ready to use. And we're just in discussion with so many CCGs and trusts about how do we deploy it. But there is this last hurdle that we have to overcome and that's that you can believe in something from a scientific evidence perspective, but there's still a leap to being the person who, who uses it on the ground. And I think that you'll see over the course of the next six months, this starting to happen and there'll just be a wave um, of, of momentum behind this. I think I was speaking to Rachel on a team and she likened it to a seesaw, which I quite like. You know, We're gonna to have to push the idea uphill uh, for the next six months and then we're going to hit the the fulcrum and it's just going to go all downhill and it's going to be a rush to to get this into the healthcare mm. system and you know the the initiatives like the aac's ai fund their job and they're set up to specifically try and help companies like ours go up that that well, it's uh, creating the levers uh, isn't it it's quite literally creating the leverage for or at least forcing the hand of the buyers to or i guess de-risking it for them in a way or, or at least making it clearer how they should do it or why they should do it or Absolutely. giving them incentives to do it i think that is the role of of the people in policy to be doing this absolutely it, it from my perspective the the thing that has been missing in the past is the senior no central nhs body says do this yeah. and people do it it just doesn't work that way yeah. but what it does do is the nhs central body that's talking about the strategic direction of the nhs have said look guys we're going to lead in artificial intelligence so if you're interested in it, if someone comes to you with a proposition that makes sense for your healthcare provider area, then do it. And that, that makes the people on the ground say, well, I've got a bit of cover here. Like I'm getting support from the top to do this thing that I want to do. And that really changes the conversations. And I guess the final point, and, and this is what we were saying uh, to Sam Roberts at the AAC, that I think there needs to be more effort to try and make innovation a key thing that people within the NHS are kind of rewarded for. Even just something as simple as doing awards where we say, hey, you did some really great innovation in the NHS. You deserve to be recognized for doing this. And I think if we can do that, instead of people saying, oh my God, I'm so maxed out. There's just literally no benefit for me to spend half my life trying to work on this thing. We can shift that to, oh my God, I'm so maxed out, but here's a solution. And I know that if I can implement this and I can help solve the problems of this, I'm gonna get recognized for the work that I'm doing. And, and that's an internal motivation, I think, for a lot of people. Completely agree. I think the right incentives can be absolutely massive here. Great, well, I think uh, with, uh, with all due respect, it's probably a good time to stop. <laughs> we could chat for all day. I think every time we speak, it just goes on and on a little bit, James. <laughs> so hopefully it's interesting to those listening. <laughs> And we'll uh, set up the next podcast. I think what we'll try and do in the next podcast is really talk about um, how we think that machine learning can deliver on the promises that we sort of talked about. We'll look at how it needs to be integrated into the care pathways or not, and the different approaches people are taking to try and get this in the market. So hopefully this is interesting. Thanks again, James, for your help and for the conversation. You're very welcome. 
So thanks for listening. That concludes the first three episodes of the Machine Learning and Healthcare podcast by Skin Analytics. And you can hear more from Neil and the team in all of the episodes to come.